This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Now, over the past week, the government has tabled, debated and passed the 12th Malaysia Plan midterm review in a special parliamentary sitting. With two more years to go before the Malaysia Plan, the 12th Malaysia Plan is up in 2025. Today, we want to take a look at how we're doing now with a special focus on healthcare accessibility for low-income groups and whether current programs such as the Madani Medical Scheme and the Pukabi 40 40 are enough to close those gaps in accessibility. Share your thoughts with us. You can call us at 03-7733-2900. You can also WhatsApp our U-Mobile number at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Um, what you have been hearing about um, things like the Madani Medical Scheme, uh, Scheme Perubatan Madani, um, whether you have thoughts on that. And joining me for the discussion today in the studio, Assistant Professor Dr. Farhan Rusli, Public Health Medicine Special from the International Islamic University, Malaysia. Dr. Farhan, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. So from a health policy and planning perspective, what's the role of something like a Malaysia plan? So uh, as you know, we have short-term plans, uh, mid-term plans, and also long-term plans. Uh, the Malaysia plan or the RMK, as we, it's, it's um, more well-known, uh, it's the mid-term plans um, for us to get to the goals of our long-term plans. So it's constructed in such a way whereby it's on a five-year uh, tenure. And most of it is about um, budgeting on, on buildings or maintenance and putting public funds into achieving what we need uh, to achieve for our long-term goals. So in terms of healthcare, uh, you're going to be touching on uh, whether we're going to be spending money on building hospitals, whether we are actually going to be spending money on uh, clinics and so on. And this all comes in in the RMK, uh, RMK plans. Mm. What lays out the long-term plans? So a lot of the long-term plans, um, to be honest with you, uh, we are very much guided from the uh, SDGs or uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. So uh, we map out our goals together with the uh, WHO. So uh, this can come from something as small or, I mean, it's not small, I mean, it's huge, but um, I mean, something micro like uh, reduction of neonatal deaths to zero, um, no more maternal mortality and so on. So there's this quite an extensive list, eliminating HIV and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So what you need uh, to understand is that um, to achieve something in health uh, requires some even decades. So what the Malaysia plan or the RMKs actually do is what can we do now to ensure that we achieve those long-term plans that we have laid out? In practice, how much are the RMKs really used to um, guide the strategies and the plans to achieve those goals? Well, um, I think that's something that's very subjective from the angle that you look at it. Um, I think a lot of people assume that uh, RMKs are something that you see instantaneous results. Uh, at the same time, um, a lot of times when you talk about RMKs, it's usually asking the ministries, um, what is it that you guys um, need that needs to be addressed right now that can't wait uh, for you to achieve whatever you've laid out. So perhaps from an ministry, they would have probably brought up the issues of the dilapidated status of health clinics and stuff like that. So that's why they ended up getting 1,200. Somebody would have highlighted the need for mental health. And that's why I think the Prime Minister announced that there'll be a new institute of mental health that's to be built. So uh, these things, um, if you look at it, were they actually in fact in the actual long-term plan? Um, 
perhaps yes for some and perhaps no. And I think what's really important here is that if you look at data coming in from long-term Malaysia plans, right? Uh, a lot of times people tend to say that the RMKs are there so that you're able to shift certain things and be flexible enough so that you can actually hit your long-term goals. But I think that's where we should actually be start. We should actually start thinking. Uh, should that actually be the case? Because when you talk about long-term plans for health, health is extremely dynamic, right? So when, when you talked about health in 2015, 2017, before even uh, 2018, in fact, before the previous general elections, nobody talked about pandemic preparedness. Mm -hmm. Nobody talked about anything like that. But they already had something that was a long-term plan and all these things, right? And when the pandemic happened, uh, definitely you should now start thinking, how do you shift your long-term goals? Your long-term goals, especially for a nation, when you talk about the country's long-term goals, it cannot be something that's immovable, yeah. right? That in, that in itself, especially when you talk about health, needs to be flexible, right? You're not talking about, I'm trying to target uh, an economic um, uh, target of uh, GDP growth of what, 6% per year, 7% per year. That's a hard target you can hit and you can do whatever stimulus that you can actually put into the economy to actually get that number. But health in itself, don't tell me that after the pandemic hit that you don't start thinking, hey, what was our long-term review for 2030? There must have been something different that we actually need to move. Do we still stick to what we said for what was on 2030, right? Or come up more on 2030 uh, Malaysia? So it's, it's something that is very critical that you must always remember, especially in health, it's something where you cannot set in stone mm. because it's extremely dynamic. But that's the point of something like a midterm review, right? At the halfway point, you kind of reflect, take stock. Okay, what do we need to uh, shift a little bit? Are, are we seeing the current review doing that? Well, okay, for me, I only see things from a bigger picture. I think that's what the show is called anyway, yes. right? A bigger picture. So, so, I'm looking at it from not even from Eagle's Eye's view, right? Since we have Starling brought in, I'm probably looking at it from a satellite point of view, <laughs> right? A very, very wide angle. So for me, let's let's pick on one thing so that it's easier for people to understand how, how I look at things. Um, you're going to be upgrading 1,200 clinics, mm. okay? At the same time, you are already stressing on the need for public-private partnerships and the need for the private GPs to play a bigger role in actually decongesting the uh, clinic kesehatans or the, cl the public clinics uh, yep. that are available. So now you see things such as Kimperubatan Madani being rolled out in effect trying to reduce uh, the, uh, the, the number of people who are going to our healthcare clinics. But at the same time, you're putting in money also to upgrade the 1,200 so that it can support more people. So you see that that big directive is that you, you are not sure the powers at B are not sure which direction they should go. Are we going to be very open towards a public-private partnership? Or are we going to be doing this alone? How much of the 1,200 clinics of upgrading are you talking about? Are you talking about for you to be able to bring in uh, more patients coming in? Are you going to be able to increase the capacity of patients? But if that's your case, why are you putting your eggs in a lot of baskets? when you are not even, you know, what we say, having a golden egg itself for you to be proud about. So I think that's that's a big critical issue here. And I think when you talk about RMKs and all these things, we cannot just look at it as what's being needed now, but from an entire bigger picture of 
what does the whole system actually need for us to actually progress as a healthcare um, you know, mm. ministry? Yeah. Is that what the health white paper was trying to do? And then you have um, papers or plans like this, and you have your midterm plans. Uh, how does something like the health white papers reform uh, proposals feed in? Or Well, if you look at the... The, okay, the RMK12 was actually tabled by, or on, on health, was actually launched by the previous minister, uh, Kairi Jamaluddin. Right? If you look at what he says, I think there were four points being said by him about digitalization, empowering um, better healthcare and understanding. And I think it was about reduction of um, NCDs and so on. So a lot of what is being said, uh, digitalization and stuff like that looks very similar to what was actually presented in the Health White Paper. And that should not be a surprise because the Health White Paper was actually uh, driven by his administration in the first place. So for me, a Health White Paper, yes, people talk about 15 years of reform and all these things, right? And now you're asking whether the RMKs actually work and why do we need the Health White Paper? We need the Health White Paper because the RMKs have not been working. Okay, so if the RMKs have always been up to their targets, we wouldn't need a health white paper. We wouldn't need reform. Uh, the reason why you've heard experts mentioning over and over again, uh, we've not had any sort of change for the past thirty years in the Malaysian healthcare uh, ecosystem. Nothing has, nothing much has been done. Thirty years. So that's six RMKs. So you tell me if experts are saying that thirty years nothing has been moved or changed. So have the RMKs, six RMKs before, been actually working? So, of course, it's not. And why you need a health white paper in the first place is so that you are able to tell the people that, look, these problems have existed. Now, we need something to be tabled and be endorsed in parliament so that people know that we need to be heading somewhere. Now, whether the RMKs are actually being tallied to what is being um, discussed in the health white paper I mean, it's something that you need to review really, really well. What's actually in the health white paper, and the first thing, the first thing when you look at things and when you talk about reform, it has to be taken in steps, right? So, uh, when you talk about what's critically important, definitely you're talking about digitalization first, but yet we don't see any sort of uh, movements towards digitalization. We don't see any sort of strives going towards that way, right? So when, when you heard about uh, Starling and they said that they're going to be giving it to the schools uh, so that because there are some places where there's no internet, you don't hear them saying that, ah, there's also some health districts, some health offices which need internet access. They can't. You go to Samporna, you go to Pula Bumbum off the coast of Eastern Sabah uh, where it's quite terrible. You don't you don't hear that moving towards that age. So definitely, whatever we said in the health white paper is not being translated in the midterm reviews of the RMK plans. All right, we'll continue this discussion after a quick break. Assistant Assistant Professor Dr. Farhan Rusli, public health medicine specialist from the International Islamic University Malaysia, in the studio with me. Um, we do want to zoom in a little bit into healthcare accessibility for low income groups later, uh, but now we've been taking that uh, big picture satellite view, uh, look at the role of something like the Malaysia plan and other uh, reform plans uh, in healthcare. Uh, call us with your thoughts, 0377332900, WhatsApp or you mobile number, 0187898899, or tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be right back. Health and Living, BFM 89.9. 
Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik, and my guest, Assistant Professor Dr. Farhan Rusli, Public Health Medicine Specialist from the International Islamic University, Malaysia. We're discussing the 12th Malaysia Plan. Uh, we've hit the midterm review period, and it was recently discussed in a special parliament sitting. And now, in the studio, we are discussing um, the healthcare elements and how we've been doing. Um, is the 12th Malaysia Plan or any of the Malaysia plans uh, achieving um, the function that it is supposed to in terms of uh, midterm planning. Um, and share your thoughts with us. 0377332900 is the number to call. WhatsApp us at 018789 or tweet us at BFM Radio. I mean, you brought up. Uh, Dr. Farhan, examples of um, very rural, very remote, uh, very very marginalised communities in Sabah, for instance, um, still not having very basic infrastructure. Um, and if we look at the, uh, you know, because I did say we want to try and zoom into um, healthcare accessibility for low-income groups today, in the first place, um, the uh, drawing up of the 12th Malaysia plan, did it give enough attention to um, this particular area in terms of reducing um, inequities? Well, I think this is something that's going to be very controversial. I'm just going to say it anyways. I am the biggest nemesis of socioeconomic distinctions in health. So when you talk about B40, M40, T20s, and you talk about are we addressing gaps, health inequalities, actually you have to talk about it as a total population. When you talk about B40s, yes, they are a group that is uh, marginalised, for example, they don't have access. But when you look at it in such a way, that's actually not really true. The accessibility of the B40s, M40s, T20s are exactly the same because the number of clinics and infrastructures are exactly the same. So uh, pick a place, for example, in Subang Jaya, you have all three groups. You have uh, the urban poor, the B40s, you have the M40s, and you also have the T20s. Yet in Subang Jaya, you don't have a single clinic kesehatan that's being built by the Ministry of Health. So then you start thinking, is actually, in fact, the problem lies with the socio-economic status of the population or is it because of the poor planning of the ministry itself? And I'm not talking about this current administration, I'm talking about decades. So when, when you look at things like that, then you start to understand that perhaps we should not be focusing so much on the B40. Uh, look at per curve B40. Uh, uptake rate is what? 11%, 14%, I can't remember, but it's probably below 20%. That's my money on it. Uh, it, was, it was a terrible time. It was only 6 to 8% uptake rates, right? So even though you get, what, 6, 7 million people who are actually eligible for it, only 600, 700,000 people actually take it up. It shows that uh, you're actually targeting a group that's not really concerned about their own health. But is it their fault? Or is it the fault of the people who are supposed to make people understand, make them increase their health literacy? But at the same time, why I said that I'm the biggest nemesis of socioeconomic distinctions is because it's this. When you talk about public health, when you talk about preventive care, you should learn, especially from COVID-19, that the disease of any kind does not know whether you're from the B40, M40, T20. And we must also remember that the M40 and the T20s are the ones who actually pay the biggest tax to the government coffers that they collect every year. But yet, this group are the ones who are not given the chance to participate in this sort of health screenings as per B40, 
But yet, these are supposed to be the population that you're supposed to be keeping healthy because they're the ones who are contributing the biggest to your economy, right? In terms of uh, in, in terms of in, uh, input to the uh, to the to the um, to the country's um, coffers, yeah, to the country's coffers, to the income tax. Mm. But that's why I said, right? You you hear about so many people not taking it up. You have a group which you should be taking care of, but they're not given access to it. So that's why I said perker B40 should not be perker B40. It should be perker 40, right? Everybody who's above 40 years old in Malaysia should get themselves screened, right? Regardless of whatever social status you are, because you can die from so many diseases regardless of what is your social income. So that's something that the government needs to look at. And I think a lot of times when people say we need to get targeted subsidies, people who deserve, people who deserve, you must understand you cannot treat health and public health the same as what you would treat a fuel subsidy. right? You cannot treat health the same as what you would um, a package rahma, for example, right? Uh, the ability to buy rice. Right? It's not the same. Health is different. And the, the, the thing that troubles me most is that a lot of people who come up with these plans are looking at it from that sense of view. Right? Who are the people we need to appease? We need to appease. We need to, we need to, we need to get their buy-in. Oh, it's the B40s, the B40s. They're the ones who are the most deserving. But in health, you cannot look at it from that standpoint. Because if your main goal or was it Kemak Moran 2030? I, I just remembered the name. Or Malaysia Makmur 2030. I, I really can't well remember. Well done, because I had no idea. Yeah. So, when you get to 2030, imagine you have a population who are in the B40 who are extremely healthy. You have a population in the M40 who are not healthy because they have not been screened. Now you tell me the burden of disease and the burden of economy is on who? It's still on the government, isn't it? And because of your many, many years of failed policies of trying to get people from the B40 only to screen, you miss so many people from the M40, the people from the M40 get sick, then now who's going to be contributing mm. to your economy? To your economy? That's where you have a big, big problem. But how yeah. do you uh, still address the social determinants that do um, play into um, the B40's lack of access to healthcare? Well, I think when you talk about, I think we have to be very careful here. Do we talk about lack of access or do we talk about their um, lack of understanding that they need access to healthcare? So that's very two completely different things. So when we talk about lack of access to healthcare in Malaysia, for example, it's quite non-existent. Because wherever you go in the country, you have access to healthcare. Yes. The issue with the B40s are do they know that at that moment in their time, they actually need access to healthcare. So that's the gap that we need to address. It's not about building more. Mm. It's not about uh, putting up more clinics and, and, and stuff like that. It's about addressing the biggest issue that nobody wants to talk about is that majority of Malaysians, regardless whether they are from the B40, M40 and T20, they're still health illiterate. They don't know that they need help. They don't know that they need to be screened. They don't know that they need preventive measures. And that failure is not on the people. That failure is now 100% on the policymakers because we have not had any meaningful policies to address this need for people to know when they actually need healthcare. Mm. We've always addressed that fact of healthcare access, healthcare access. In Malaysia, everybody has healthcare access. So that's something that we must really, really be very careful uh, when we thread on it. All right. What about the scheme Perubatan Madani that's also targeted at the B40? 
Yeah. So, uh, remember when I touched on this, on the uh, skin perubatan madani and the upgrading of the clinics, right? Mm-hmm. Very early on on the show. So, uh, if you notice, I think they came up with the numbers, 80,000 people have benefited from it from 130,000 clinic visits. I can't remember the exact numbers. More than 130,000 outpatient, outpatient treatments, treatments right? have been given through 1,300 private GPs. Okay, so 130,000 uh, people have received these treatments. So, this means 130,000 visits could be from the same person over and over, could be from different people. I think there were 80,000 unique individuals. I can't remember the exact figures, right? Okay, all right. So... That's this is this is this is very interesting. What was the main reason for the skin perubatan madani to be introduced in the first place? To take the load off the clinic kesehatan. Has it taken the load off the clinic kesehatan? I don't know. Has it reduced the number of patients who are actually waiting in the clinic kesehatan? 130,000 unique visits over 1,300 clinics over how many states? If you look at the number of people who have reduced from visiting such as Klinik Kesehatan in Klang, Bandar Baru Klang, for example. If you take out five people, do you think it's a very big significant of people who have left waiting? Mm-hmm. And this is over six months, yeah? It's not that 130,000 people didn't go to the Klinik Kesehatan today. It's 130,000 people who didn't go to the Klinik Kesehatan over many, many months. So if you divide that number, divide that number by districts, by states, then you start seeing, hmm, is my scheme actually working or not? Am I doing it the right way? Now, the ideology is extremely good. But the implementation and the way it's being run through, that is something that is very highly doubtful. The monitoring, right? Because are you are you tracking the right parameters? Well, in the first place, you need to ask yourself, what parameters are you actually tracking? Yeah. Right? Have you actually tracked it? If you just tell me that I can now report that 130,000 people have used the skin perubatan madani, I'm going to say, break it down to me, to the different districts, break it down to me to the different days. Yeah. How many people have actually used it? And has it translated to better care in the public service sector? Mm. Has patient waiting times reduced and so on? So if it's not, then you start questioning yourself. It's not helping the public sector. There must be something wrong with the way I'm doing things. Mm. Now, the way we have to look at it, if you would allow me, is that when you talk about transformation, when you talk about reformasi of kesehatan, you talk about reform of health, it needs a total system overhaul. You have to start looking at how you can actually integrate private GPs into our healthcare system, right? Why are we not utilizing the tens of thousands of GPs out there into actually just taking the whole load of the public sector. Because now you tell me that there are certain hospitals who don't have enough medical officers. There are certain hospitals, such as in Serdang, there was a case where a patient came in at 8 o'clock, only be seen at 6.30 in the evening, right? We've heard about this so many times. And we blame it on because there's problems with medical officers not being stationed here and there. So my question is, if we have enough private GPs to run the majority of cases, why not give all our primary healthcare access to private GPs and move all these medical officers that we have in the public healthcare system to tertiary hospitals? Why keep them and run? Why do we need as a public sector to compete with the private GPs? Because now you're going to be telling me, yeah, but not everybody can afford private GPs. But let me tell you something, right? The cost of me going to a private GP is actually cheaper than going to a public clinic. In what way? In what way? Let me tell you this. The only reason you don't feel it is because the government is paying for it, right? It costs you 50 ringgit to get, or for example, cough and cold medicine from the GP and you see a doctor, right? When you go to a clinic, 
Who are you greeted by? You're greeted by a common staff, administrative staff. You're greeted by a staff nurse. You're greeted by uh, perhaps a medical officer. You're then being given referred to a, a specialist, for example, a family medicine specialist. Then you're being seen, uh, perhaps if you have a, a cut or something like that, you're being seen probably by a medical assistant. You go into that clinic, it's being the electricity, the water, all that is being counted. Now, if you count the amount of all that human resource, it's actually more expensive for you to step into a public. But the only reason why people don't feel it is because you charge a ringgit for it. Yeah. Right, so that's that's what people need to understand. Right, it's not that it's free; you're still being paid for it, but it's just coming from another pocket, which is actually yours because you're paying the taxes, and then right. and it's, it's gets supplied there. Okay. Now, we have to st- stop, and we have to actually sit down together, and we have to start thinking, which is more economically beneficial for the country, for me to run? Is it by running? all these people through private GPs where I can actually say one private GP gets to take care of 2,000 people, right? So it's not about uh, winner takes all. Everybody gets uh, their own private doctor. So for that 2,000 population, for example, in Subang, they get to go to see one doctor. The other 2,000 gets to see the next and the next and the next, right? Then now you have continuity of healthcare because you see the same person. The same person knows about you, not that you walk into any clinic and you find a different doctor every single time you step in and every time they ask you, are you here for what reason? Can you tell me about your past history? Have you been taking this? Have you been taking that? You know, this is what backlogs the people, right? So if you have this continuity of care, then now you're stepping up from a third world mentality to a first world mentality. Now you ask yourselves, what about all the family medicine specialists that we have trained? These people have an extremely important role still to play because all these private GPs, they need to have a connection to who they can refer cases they cannot manage. And this is where the government can step in and this is where they should actually play a role, not playing a role of, hey, you got a cold and flu? Come, let me give you an MC so that you're off to go. That's not what we should be doing. What's stopping us from doing this? Well, uh, technically, nobody wants to do it because I think there's a lot of paperwork. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of, I think, misunderstanding. Or we have this uh, big mistrust for some reason, which I really cannot fathom, is that everybody in the public sector thinks that the private sector is just out to make money. And I think that it's really ridiculous because all... The doctors in Malaysia, all the doctors in Malaysia who are in private practice came from the public healthcare system because that's how it's structured. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're mistrusting your old colleagues, right? Well, there is some truth to, you know, private hospitals wanting to make money because they are business. But at the same time, if we look at how the bigger picture can actually help us, how it can actually make us have more money to spend to other things that are more important and actually become more efficient in delivering primary healthcare, then I think we can start to actually give out results that actually really benefit the people. But this was addressed to some extent in the health white paper. Do you feel that 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 15-year plan laid it out? Definitely not. Uh, Because if it was supposed to be laid out in a white paper, it would be written extensively well because that sort of reform, you're talking about something like um, establishing like a national health healthcare system like the NHS in UK. So um, that in itself would actually need 
a paper by itself, by itself. To, to, to be to be honest with you but i think we need to be moving towards that because if you really want to talk about moving the country towards um towards um a more progressive nation that the ministry of health changes its role from actually being a service provider to being custodians of health and being monitors and also evaluators of health this is the right step forward and if we don't take the step now and it's really sad because no matter how many clinics you refurbish your population is just going to grow and your problems are just going to be remaining the same can i get you to just elaborate a little bit more about the gaps in why the midterm plans like uh, rmk's um can't really do their job well i mean you've touched on it a little bit that the nuts and bolts right at the end of the day we can lay out broad targets in rmk's mm-hmm. Um, are we laying out how to do it in subsequent plans, blueprints, anything like that? What What do we need to do? Well, uh, you have to understand that the RMKs are very um, specific, to be honest with you. When they say they want to upgrade 1,200 clinics, it's very specific which 1,200 clinics get upgraded. When they say they want to establish an institute for mental health, it's very specific. Uh, it's not broad at all. Um, but uh, what's... what's when they lay it out, it's just about the current infrastructure needs of that specific ministry, for example, uh, rather than addressing, if I do this, I'm, I'll be accomplishing that long-term goal. If A I vision. do that, mm-hmm. yeah, or, or with that long-term goal. Mm-hmm. Because when you start to tally it, when was our long-term goal on mental health ever stated was it stated if it was stated was the institute of mental health ever discussed why has it now popped up is it because we see how important how important it is mm. so that's why i'm saying if if you think that is flexible for you to do so for the rmks your long term goals also need to be flexible that's why you need to be very open to ideas about how you need to transform your healthcare system then only you'll be able to actually progress if not you'll be stuck in a, in a loop where I'll say in about five years, we probably won't have sufficient amounts of cash to actually sustain our healthcare system. But if the RMK states something like building an institute for mental health, um, but it doesn't um, lay out what's going to go into that, uh, who's going to staff it? And I think you mentioned this to me earlier. Yeah. Um, how are you building up the capacity uh, to serve this institute, where where do those um, the nuts and bolts come from? Well, I think it's really interesting that 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 we bring this up again because um, I think as of today we still have issues of contract doctors not having permanent posts because of GPA not having enough posts in the uh, in the in in our uh, civil service program. Uh, at the same time, we are building institutions that need staffing of human resources. We have no idea where the human resources are going to come in. Uh, if they do come in, we have a problem in our healthcare system where a lot of our clinical specialists leave for private sector uh, because of the poor retention rates in the public service. And this is because to extremely low pay. Uh, please do not compare um, a pay of a, of a clinical specialist to a person who is... Uh, 
who is not comparable, like a non-professional. Obviously, it's going to look like he makes 10 times more, but rather compare the rates that's being paid by the public service to the private sector. So a lot of times when this has been brought up, uh, people have said, ah, if you think that's what you want, just go. And that's the problem. People do go. And when people do go, we lose our talent pool. And when we lose our talent pool, we have an issue. We keep building infrastructure. We keep building superb um, hospital institutes. Um, I think Johor has an allocation for half a billion ringgit, I think, for upgrading of the entire hospitals, right? Imagine you have all the high-tech hospitals in the world, in your country, superb state-of-the-art, but all your specialists are gone because you didn't address a second part of the issue, which is human capital retention, you know, talent retention, development, and all these things. That's why I say that health is extremely fragile in a sense whereby if you focus on one thing, mm. you don't focus on the other, mm. it just runs away, right? Yep. So when you bring out the holistic plan, your, your, your plans, what I'm hoping is that, of course, whatever's being said in RMK will get done. The clinics do need to get upgraded. But at the same time, for the budget in 2024 that's about to be tabled in November, mm. addresses the issues on how whatever is being said in RMK can actually be given a good run so that it actually gets the results that you actually intended it to. All right. So um, it's nice that you brought up budget. Uh, I think that's sort of like the next thing we can fix our eyes on. Any thoughts, um, if you have the ear of the Minister of Finance, what should be in there? Well, I would tell the Minister of Finance to listen to the Prime Minister because I think that's very important for him to do so. And if he listens to the Prime Minister... the Just prime, the other side of himself. Yeah, then the Prime Minister should start listening to, I think, the grouses of the healthcare sector. And I think that the indications, I think it was mentioned by Prof Adiba, that top 30 UM students go off to Singapore, Australia. These are telltale signs that you actually have a crisis that's brewing. And the only reason why it's not exploded yet is because... Um, a lot of stopgap measures have been done. But there will come a critical point where if you don't address it, when it breaks, it's going to really, really be broken and it's going to be so difficult for you to refix it. I think it's high time, for example, and I've mentioned this a hundred times before, for you to address these issues, you've already outlined them, you've already gotten it in the health white paper, you've already seen it. I guarantee you that the current health minister will not be able to actually accomplish the health white paper. And this is not saying that she's not good at a job. I'm saying that the current health minister has so many other things to deal with. And the immense nature of the health white paper, when you talk about health reform, needs its own person to be sitting just to be focused on health white paper reform itself. Now, you cannot expect a minister to come in at 8 o'clock in the morning, leave at 5 in the evening, I'm sure she leaves much later, to spend, okay, I'm going to allocate 4 to 5 p.m. for health white paper, see where it's going. You can't do that. It's, it's very, it's, it's, it's really, really um, not very brilliant for you to leave that on someone, okay? Because you can't expect results, because they have to deal with so many other things at the same time, right? So that's why I think that it's critical for the Minister of Finance and the Prime Minister to sit down, have a heart-to-heart -heart talk to each other and start thinking, am I really serious 
about health white paper reform? Am I really serious about transforming and reforming healthcare? If I am serious, it's actually up to the level of the prime minister himself to actually bring this agenda forward. And he must persuade the finance minister to make sure that the funds are enough for the prime minister to achieve his goal. And only with that, then only you'll be able to tell the RMKs with the long-term plans and health white paper, then only you will have an achievable outcome that you can actually see. It, it just seems, um, it, it seems uh, at every level, there are so many challenges, so many issues that need to be dealt with, um, a lot of legacy issues. I, are you optimistic, Dr. Farhan? You've not left me with much optimism today. Well, th- this is the thing, right? Um, I think a lot of people don't like health okay i mean we want to be healthy but we don't like health and i think that's just 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 god given we don't think about health until we are sick so that's why we have always been for eons uh been a sick care ministry rather than a preventive care ministry and i think that this is also part of human nature uh and for politicians um sad to say um health is really not sexy it's really not sexy to talk about health because whatever plans you put in place, whatever things you want to put in place, you can't see it in two years. You can't see it in five years. You can't see it in 10 or maybe 20. Mm-hmm. Sometimes some changes take three, four, five decades to come in. And some are painful changes. And some are painful changes, exactly. And you need to have the determination that this is beyond politics. This is for the future of the country because we are an aging population. Right now, we don't see that we have actually addressed that issue where we have actually built a lot of age-friendly mm-hmm. uh, access to everywhere else, mm-hmm. except for, say, KLCC, for example. It's as though that the country only concerns itself with the city centre. Uh, this is the trouble because the health output is so long that you have to be sure that what you put in, you know that you're not going to be able to be the one who's going to be holding up the championship trophy and saying, I did this, right? But that's why health is extremely, extremely um, elegant in such a way whereby whoever is the custodian of health, whether it be the minister, for example, that everything that is being done is for the benefits of the generations to come, not for the self-interest of a few. Let's hope um, the powers that be have the same conviction that you do, Dr. Farhan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Assistant Professor Dr. Farhan Rusli, Public Health Medicine Specialist from International Islamic University, Malaysia. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.